But this morning, it's our joy to feast again in Hebrews chapter 2. I hope that your family enjoyed the celebration of Resurrection Sunday as I did, as Wade mentioned earlier. What a great time of singing together as we've had again this morning. What a t- great time in God's Word. And for our family, had the privilege of spending some time with extended family after church. Uh, after service, we went to my in-law's home for lunch. And at one point after eating, we were, were sitting together in the living room. I was sitting on one couch with... Uh, one of my children, and my wife was sitting on another couch next to her father, and he had his arm around her, and they were talking and catching up together. And my child sitting next to me looked over at me with a grin and said, Dad, are you jealous that mom's cuddling with another man? (laughs) And immediately I smiled and said, absolutely not, because he's her father, right? Now, if any other man tries to put his arm around my wife, we'll have words, right? But this is... (laughs) This is her father. And so not only did it not bother me, it brought great joy to my heart because this was appropriate. It's an appropriate way for a father to show love towards his daughter. We might even say it is fitting to borrow that phrase from the author of Hebrews in chapter 2. We naturally understand that some actions that would be completely inappropriate on almost any other occasion can be also the cause of great joy in the right context. There are actions that a father displays towards his children that he would never display towards one who's not his child. In the book of Hebrews, we have been marveling at this statement from the author in chapter 2, verse 10, when he declares that it was fitting, it was appropriate or right, for the father in bringing many sons to glory to perfect his son, Christ, through suffering. And today we'll begin looking at the author's reasoning for that claim as we continue on in this passage in Hebrews. Now you may remember the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. And for several weeks now we've been unpacking this main idea that Jesus as God's divine son is undeniably superior to the angels. We've seen nine different proofs of this fact, and they're there for you on the screen. But we've been focusing on this ninth proof. Jesus is the better Adam. He became our substitute. And he was our representative in three primary ways, as the author mentions, his humiliation of taking on flesh, becoming a man, his exaltation, and his substitution. And this idea of substitution, of Jesus Christ being the substitute for our sins, has led us now into this final section of Hebrews chapter 2. For the sake of context, let's read together, beginning in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, and read down through verse 13. The author writes, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. 
For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now, we're going to be looking this morning primarily just at verse 11 here in our text, but verses 11 through 13 form a unit, a unit that helps fill out what the author said there in that declaration in verse 10. The declaration was that Christ's suffering was fitting. That's what we've been looking at. Christ's suffering was fitting. It was right. It was appropriate. And the objective of that suffering was the salvation of God's people. Through the substitutionary death of his son, he brought his people to himself in salvation. Now, why? Why was it so fitting? Why was it so right? We've looked at a few of those things that were already contained in verse 10. But if you look at the rest of this text all the way down through verse 18, you'll see the repetition of the word for or therefore. That's because he's going to make several more points to explain to us why it was so fitting for the Father to bring us to glory through the suffering of the Son. The first reason is in verses 11 to 13, and it's this. We are a spiritual family. Reason number one, that it was so fitting, is we are a spiritual family. Now, we've already seen a hint at this wonderful description in verse 10 when God referred to us as sons of glory. You remember that? We talked about the fact that we are God's sons by adoption. We are his spiritual sons and daughters. But now, this week, we're going to look at some of the the theological underpinnings, if you will, of that idea. Just what does it mean to be an adopted son or daughter of God? And how has that happened? Now in verse 11, notice the very first word there is for. This connects us right back into the context of verse 10. And he's giving us again this explanation of why it's fitting for the father to perfect the son through suffering on our behalf. And there are two implications here that he's going to flesh out in this idea of us as the family of God. We have God as our Father that we'll look at this week, and then next week we'll look at the fact that Christ is our brother. But specifically in verse 11, he says, for both. Both. Now, obviously, he's introducing two people or two groups of people with this word both. And the first person in this Uh, under this heading of both, is the person of Christ himself. But he doesn't say Christ. He, He calls Jesus by a very specific name. Look at verse 11. For both he who sanctifies. He who sanctifies. That's the title by which he refers to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity here. He who sanctifies. He's presented as our sanctifier. Now, this is a present active participle. What that means is it's in the present tense. It's an ongoing reality and it's active. Christ is the one who is actively doing this. He's the agent in our sanctification. Now we could go to other passages that also mention that the Father and the Spirit play active roles in our sanctification. That's absolutely true. But for our purposes this morning, the focus is on the role of Christ as our sanctifier. 
But to understand this fully, we have to stop and talk about the concept of sanctification. What exactly is meant here when the author says that Jesus performs our sanctification, that he is our sanctifier? Well, the Bible speaks of sanctification in two different ways. And it's crucial that we understand both of those to really get the meaning of the text here. As we talk about sanctification, we can talk about it, first of all, as positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. Alan Cairns defines this this way. It means to consecrate or set apart for a sacred use or purpose. Think of positional sanctification like this. It is to set apart as holy. And the Bible talks about this kind of sanctification both of people and in the Old Testament even of objects. You remember that the Levites were set apart as holy unto God because they were going to perform the the services needed for the worship of God. But also the utensils that they were going to use were set apart as holy. They were sanctified. That's this idea of positional sanctification. That same idea is brought over into the New Testament now to refer to true believers in Jesus Christ as positionally sanctified, set apart as holy unto God. In fact, the Bible even speaks of Jesus as being sanctified in this sense by the Father. John 10, verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered to them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. He's referring to a uh, passage in the Psalms. If, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Notice in verse 36 there, he calls himself the one the Father has sanctified. That is, God set Jesus apart. Obviously, God, Jesus needed no addition to his holiness. That's not the idea. He's set apart for this special task, set apart as the Holy One of God is the meaning there. And then example number two would be believers are sanctified in this positional sense by Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Later in that same chapter, Hebrews 10, 14, it says, By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He's using something here called the perfect tense. It's really a past reality that has ongoing effects into the future. It's like taking a boulder and dropping it into a lake. That's a one-time activity when that boulder drops into the lake, but we know the ripple effect goes on and on. That's the perfect tense. That's what he's talking about here. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Past tense reality. He's already set us apart in Christ. And so positional sanctification is similar to the idea of justification in that justification is a one-time legal action in which we are declared righteousness, right, righteous by the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to us. In the same way, positional sanctification, stay with me, positional sanctification is a one-time act for the believer that we have been set apart unto God as holy. This is why the Bible sometimes refers to Christians in the New Testament as saints. How can the Bible speak of us as saints? If you know yourself at all, 
you know you're not really a saint because you still have sin. So what is the Bible talking about? Well, it's, it's certainly not the idea of Roman Catholicism of there are these people who reach a, a, a unique height of holiness and so we revere them as saints. No, the Bible speaks of all Christians as saints based on this idea. God has rescued them and set them apart as holy. Colossians 1-2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, here's why this matters, is because this idea of positional sanctification should bring a load of confidence to us as Christians that God will complete the work that he began in us. That's why he can speak of us as holy in the past tense, because it's so sure that God is going to bring us home to ultimate glorification that he speaks of us as saints, having been sanctified. In fact, a right understanding of our positional sanctification is essential to the proper pursuit of our progressive sanctification, which is the second kind of sanctification the Bible speaks of. This is the more common way the New Testament uses the word sanctify. It's probably the way that you think about sanctification most commonly. Progressive sanctification is to purify or make holy. Here's the difference in the two terms. Positional sanctification is a one-time act in the past. It's really a declaration. God has set us apart as holy. Progressive uh, sanctification refers to our present reality. It describes you right now if you're a Christian. Because while God may call us saints and he may have set us apart, we know we still struggle with sin, right? We know we still struggle with sin in the present tense. And so this idea of progressive sanctification is the day-by-day, the day, slow but sure process by which God makes us more and more holy. It is really the full restoration over time of the image of God within us that will be completed when he brings us home to glory. That is progressive sanctification. It's, an, it's a work of God. It's by the grace of God. And yet we are called to give our maximum effort towards it. We see this in places like Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved... Just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, here's the command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying put forth your full effort towards growth in sanctification. Work out your salvation. Let it have its full effect in you. But then verse 13 says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's the balance is that we are to give our maximum effort towards sanctification, but the only reason that that will have any effect in actually making us holy is because God himself is at work in us. So, as we think about both of these biblical definitions of sanctification, we have to ask which one is the author of Hebrews talking about when he says that Jesus is our sanctifier. Does he mean Jesus is our sanctifier in our positional sanctification or in our progressive sanctification? Well, the answer is yes. He is our sanctifier in every way. Well, every angle you want to look at, 
He is our sanctifier. Remember that verse that I read from Hebrews 10, 14. We actually see both positional and progressive sanctification in this one verse. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I told you before that that word perfected is in the perfect tense. It's a past tense reality that has ongoing effects. But the word sanctified at the end of that verse is actually in the present tense. So we could legitimately translate it as those who are being sanctified. By one offering, he has perfected for all time in the past tense, and yet at the same time, he's perfected those who are in the present tense being sanctified. Both are applied to Christ by his one offering of himself. And so now we've come full circle to the meaning of this peculiar title for Jesus here in Hebrews. It becomes clear. And here is the meaning. Because God the Father accomplished his eternal plan of redemption by ordaining the suffering of the Son on the cross, the Son becomes the agent who sanctifies God's adopted sons and daughters. It's a reminder that Jesus Christ did not merely die to forgive you of your sins. He did die for that. But also to make you holy so that you can be with he and the Father in glory forever. That is what Christ is currently doing in us, his people. We see this in the famous passage on marriage in Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And verse 26 says, why? Why did he give himself up for her? So that he might sanctify her. Here we have Jesus as the sanctifier again. How's he going to sanctify her? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that for this end goal, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus then has become our sanctifier, the sanctifier of God's children by offering his own perfect life as a substitute for them. He has the full power and privilege of not only setting them apart as holy unto God, but actually bringing them to real holiness. He is our sanctifier. You understand how that should change your perspective if you're in Christ? If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, then what could possibly shake your assurance of salvation when you consider the fact that Christ has sanctified you both positionally and progressively, he has committed himself to making you holy. When you're in the heat of the battle of, of sin and fighting temptation at every turn, this reality here in Hebrews calls us to turn our eyes to Christ who sanctifies us. If you're in Christ, he's purchased you. He's purchased your sanctification at the cost of his own perfect life. And when we consider this, it should cause every shred of doubt, of fear, of worry to fade and melt into the background as we behold in faith Christ, our sanctifier. Don't you see? This should, this should grab a hold of you. This should get a hold of you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It equips us for war 
against the arrows of temptation thrown by the world and the flesh and the devil. How do we hold our ground in a world that seems to be running intentionally headlong into rebellion against God? How do we as parents and grandparents go to sleep at night instead of staying up in fear and worry over what will happen to our children or grandchildren in this world that seems so committed to their destruction? You turn your eyes and their eyes to the sanctifier. We turn our eyes to Christ. It is he who has committed himself to the sanctification of God's sons and daughters. And friends, what he sets out to do, he accomplishes every single time. The world may have an intentional plan of rebellion against God, but it will not prevail against God's intentional plan to redeem his people and to make them holy. We don't live in fear. We live in trust with our eyes on the one who is our sanctifier. Just as we sang a moment ago from Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Is that your confidence, Christian? Are you confident that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion? We should be. We should be. If Christ is committed to our sanctification and promises to see us safely home to glory... How foolish it is for us to live lives of worry and fear with such a sanctifier as this. In fact, the author of Hebrews is so confident that that Christ is our sanctifier. Look how he talks about us. Look back at the verse, verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. We get the other side of the, the coin, the other side of the word both, and those who are sanctified. This is referring to Christians. Christians are here called those who are sanctified. This is a present passive participle. And so again, we could translate this, and those who are being sanctified. It is the work of God. It's passive on our part, meaning that God is the one doing the work of sanctification, but it's in the present tense. He is present tense right now, making us progressively like himself. This is instructive for us. It causes us to remember not to put confidence in the flesh, not to put confidence in our own abilities, but to put our confidence in Christ and Christ alone as the one who can make us holy and bring us to Christ. We are equally powerless in our sanctification just as we were in our justification. We could not save ourselves and we cannot sanctify ourselves. The Bible calls us again repeatedly to give our effort toward sanctification, but with the balance that we remember that it is God who is at work in us. It's Christ's commitment to our sanctification that motivates our effort. And it's Christ's commitment to our sanctification that causes our effort to bear fruit. He gives us the motivation and he gives us the fruit. He is the sanctifier. We are being sanctified by him. So I would ask you in light of that to evaluate the current spiritual life that you have. How are you doing in that pursuit of sanctification? Are you honestly giving your maximum effort towards sanctification? And on the other side, is your confidence in the fact that you will be sanctified in your own efforts 
or in Jesus Christ, the one who sanctifies. In thinking of this, I, I was reminded of Psalm 127.1, where it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Now, that's a, a psalm that we should take literally. It really applies to any pursuit. If we, if we set out on any pursuit, it will not bear fruit unless the Lord is the one that causes it to bear fruit. But at the same time, if the laborer doesn't pick up the hammer and the nail and go to work, God's not going to build the building. God will strengthen him for the task. He will equip him for the task. He will cause that task to succeed, but the worker must swing the hammer. In the same way, we give our maximum effort towards holiness by pouring over the scriptures, applying the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures, uh, spending time with God in prayer, being involved in the local church and serving and using our gifts and sharing the gospel and working hard to put off sin, renew our mind and put on righteousness. We give our effort, but only by the grace and work of God in our lives will those efforts bear fruit unless the Lord builds the house. They labor in vain who build it. And so in light of that balance, evaluate your own spiritual walk with the Lord today. Are you maintaining that balance? But now having described Christ as the sanctifier and God's people as the sanctified, the author comes to his actual point. Because while those are really important truths, and if we don't understand those things, we're going to miss the meaning of the text, that's really not the point that he's making here. Remember, he began this with the word for and then the word both. For both the sanctifier and the sanctified. Now we have both sides of that coin and we can look at this in its context. The intention here is for the author to tell us how these two are connected. How is the sanctifier connected to the sanctified? And how does that help us understand how this was fitting for the Father to save us through the suffering of the Son? Here's the connection. Look back at verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Are all from one Father. Now, I have to tell you very briefly, there's some debate about how to translate this phrase. Because the Greek actually stops with the word one. For both are all from one. And so we have to understand from the context what is meant by that one. And if you have different translations other than the NASB, you may see a different word put there. But let me explain to you why I believe the NASB gets it right here. They insert the word father interpretively to help us understand what the text is saying. And I think they absolutely got it right because some would argue that the author's point here is that we are one with Christ in Adam, that we share a human nature, and that that's what the author is getting at here in Hebrews. Now, that's true. Understand, that's, that's absolutely true. He, he became a real man, had a real human nature, yet without sin. That's absolutely true, but that really doesn't fit the context. Remember, when we read the Bible, the context is always how we understand the meaning of a given word or phrase. We have to understand the context in which it's used. And here in Hebrews, really since the beginning, he's been talking about this family connection, familial language of God the Son. He's the Son of God. 
even in this text, right after that, he's going to talk about the fact that Christ is our brother. He's talking about the idea of family here. And so our connection, the connection point of the sanctifier and the sanctified in this text, we are one in the sense that we have the same father. That's the point. That's the wonderful truth that he's trying to bring home to us here. Now, this has immense implications. Just think about that. Just read the words again. For both he who sanctifies, let's just say who they are. For both Jesus and all believers are all from one Father. Understand how this connects, first of all, to the larger argument the author is making. One of the reasons that it was perfectly fitting for the Father to bring us to glory through the suffering of the Son is because we are His sons. And so it made perfect sense for Him then to send His only begotten Son on this rescue mission to bring to Him His adopted sons and daughters. That's the idea. Remember, this is an eternal plan of redemption. God did not respond to our sin by then stepping back and saying, okay, didn't see that coming. I need to come up with a rescue plan. No, 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 no. The plan of God for salvation happened before he ever created the world. That's what the Bible says. And so what we're witnessing here is really a grand stage in which the glory of God is displayed through his son as he sends the only begotten to come and redeem his adopted sons whom he set his affection on before he ever even made the world. Now, I know we've gone to this text many times, and we'll go there again in the future, I'm sure, but we have to go for a moment back to Ephesians chapter 1 because really there there just is no other place in Scripture that so succinctly and clearly lays out the eternal plan of God. If you want to know what was happening behind the scenes in the mind of God before he ever created the world, when he came up with this plan of redemption, we need to see it here in Ephesians. Obviously, it's in other places too, but we see it very clearly here. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, and we're going to tie this into what's being said here in Hebrews. Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Now very quickly, let's break down the key elements of this text and show how they tie in beautifully with the truths that are being displayed here in Hebrews 2.11. In verse 4, of that text, he explains what we call the doctrine of election, which says here, before ever creating the world, God chose those who would be his, and he chose them specifically to be holy and blameless, verse 4. But then he goes on 
in verse 5 and fleshes that out to say in that choosing, he was also predetermining that he would adopt these people. They would become his sons and daughters. And again, this is still before the creation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption. These are going to be my sons. These are going to be my daughters. And this adoption, Paul says, is paid for through Christ. That, I, that idea ties right back into our text. That he is our sanctifier. It was through the blood of Christ that we were adopted, that we were even elected by the eternal decree of God. Our sanctification, being set apart as holy, took place in the decree of God. It was ordained by God before he ever said, let there be light. But how? How exactly would he accomplish this? It's in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Through the suffering of the Son. Do you see the connection? This is, this is why it was fitting. It's come full circle for us here. As we think about verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 2, it was perfectly fitting for God the Father, through the suffering of the Son, to bring about his eternal plan by which he would adopt us as his sons and daughters. He brought to fruition through Christ this eternal decree. And that's why the author says it was fitting. It was appropriate because not only is the son, Jesus Christ, his son, but because of his adoption, we too are his sons. Understand the significance of that. In commissioning Jesus, who was the, the only begotten son, the unique son of God, the uncreated one, the one who is, is fully God, in nature, he sent that one to purchase these adopted spiritual sons and daughters that he set apart unto himself before the world began. This is mind boggling. It's astounding. When we understand that God sees us as his children, it begins to make more sense as to why the author here is saying it was fitting. Because in, in sending Jesus, he was saying, Go and get my children. Go and redeem them and bring them to be with us. In fact, the son, understand, did not do this begrudgingly, but before, for the joy set before him, the scriptures say. It was a joy for Christ to do this because he understood these adopted sons and daughters to be gifts from the father to him, is what the scripture says. Listen to, in John 17, three different times how Jesus refers to believers. Now, in the beginning here in John 17, he speaks of, of his disciples, but he adds later, and all those who will come to faith through them. And so we are included in these statements as well. John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. John 17, 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you gave me, for they are yours. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. So let this sink in. If you're a Christian this morning, though you were God's enemy, 
steeped in rebellion and sin, he sent his only begotten son to take on flesh and to die in your place and rise again so that he might not only rescue you from his just wrath, but secure your eternal adoption so that you could relate to him both now and forever as sons and daughters. This is the marvelous truth. The author of Hebrews is so eloquently getting across to us. And the son went with joy. He said, these are the ones whom you've given me and I've accomplished it perfectly as you said. Now I do have to make a caveat that's really important for us theologically to understand just quickly and that is that when the author here says that both the sanctifier and the sanctified, Jesus and you and I if you're in Christ, are both Uh, sharers in God as our Father, he's not equating our sonship with the sonship of Jesus. Jesus Christ is routinely said to be the only begotten Son. That is, he's in the special category. He is, in fact, God himself. He, He has never been created like we have, and so he's not putting us on par with the Son in in that way. Remember John 1 verses 1 and 2 it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God the word was God he was in the beginning with God. So this one this only begotten one was there as part of this eternal decree that happened before the world began. And then in John 1:14 it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus is one with God in the sense that he obviously shares the same essence or nature of deity. He is God. And so the scriptures never describe our adoption as sons in those same terms. We want to be careful not to mix those up. In fact, it's because he is the the only begotten, the unique son of God, and he willingly came to sacrifice his life for us that he is even now exalted to the highest place. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 11 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But though that is absolutely true, Though our sonship is not on equal terms with the sonship of Christ in that way because of who he is, that does not detract in any measure from the reality of the fact that when God calls us sons and daughters, he means we are truly sons and daughters. The author of Hebrews says plainly, both are from one. Both are from one. If you're in Christ this morning, that truth should cause your heart to soar with joy, with worship, with assurance that what God began in you, he will see through to the finish line, as we said. It should cause you to worship God. It should motivate to give you to give your effort towards, towards the pursuit of righteousness, not out of guilt, not out of a sense of self-righteousness, but truly as a child of God who loves him as a father. But while doctrines such as as election and adoption through Christ should cause our hearts to soar with joy and confidence, for some, these doctrines instead produce anxiety, worry, and fear. 
Some hear these glorious truths of God determining as an act of love and grace in eternity past to set his love on us as sons and daughters, and they hear that, and their immediate question is, how can I ever be sure of my salvation if it's determined by God's election? And when people think this way, they misunderstand these great doctrines. Because sovereign election and God's predestined gracious adoption do not cancel out the means by which God saves his people. Every single person who will ever be saved will be saved because of repentance and faith in the true gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. Election does not cancel out the fact that man is accountable to God for how he responds to the gospel. And we see this from the mouth of Jesus himself in John chapter 6, verses 35 to 34. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. In our text in Hebrews, we've seen that that God the Father is, is the Father of both Christ and all those who are in Christ. But the question this morning really is, how can you be certain that God is your Father? How can you personally be sure that you're in that group here called the sanctified? None of us have access to the mind of God in eternity past. We weren't there. We can't go there. It's not our job, nor is it within our ability to know whom God has chosen unto salvation and whom he has not. And so let me caution you this morning that if you're trying to to evaluate whether or not you're saved and you keep going back to the doctrine of election, you're looking in the wrong place. So if that's not the place to look, then where do we look? Well, didn't you see Jesus told us where to look? In verse 40, he said he came to do the will of the Father, and this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, there's where you look, Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself, listen to that, I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Friend, look to Jesus Christ. Behold and believe in Christ. Stop trying to come to God as a theologian, trying to figure out all of God's secret plans in eternity past that he's not chosen to give us. Instead, come to God as a beggar who understands that you have sinned against a holy God and that you desperately need his forgiveness. And then understand that in his grace, he has provided what you need in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
His plan has always been that his people, yes, whom he elected in eternity past, would be redeemed in time through faith and repentance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All that's needed for you this morning is to recognize your sin and to recognize the goodness of Jesus Christ in the gospel and to run to him in repentance and faith. You're not perfect, but he was You cannot possibly pay the debt that your sins owe, but he did. And you cannot possibly resurrect yourself and bring yourself into the presence of God, but he can. If you will only repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you will know the love of a father to a son. Jesus will be your sanctifier. Listen, if you've allowed your thinking this morning to be muddled because you can't figure out difficult doctrines such as election or adoption or predestination. Let me just tell you that you've created a smoke screen for yourself that's blinding you from the simple truth and the real issue. Here's the real issue. The real issue is that you're a sinner that desperately needs God's forgiveness. And here's the real good news. It's available in Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. And then we spend the rest of our life, the rest of eternity, learning the glories and the richness of just what it means that he is the sanctifier and that we are the sanctified. But if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ this morning, don't miss the opportunity to take these precious truths to heart. First of all, I would call you to contemplate your positional sanctification. Take comfort in the fact that though your battle with sin is not yet done, the war is won. What we're fighting in the war against sin are the final skirmishes from a defeated enemy firing over his shoulder as he runs in fear. Take courage in the fact that if you belong to Christ, God has set you apart unto himself and he will not fail you. If you belong to Christ, it's a guaranteed reality that though sin remains today, There's coming a day in which you and I will be made perfect and holy and we will be with him forever. Take courage. Press on with that hope. But secondly, pursue your progressive sanctification. Don't stop fighting. Fight the good fight. It's it's worth it. All the glamour and glitz of this fallen world will not satisfy. They're cisterns that can't hold water. They're they're salt water posing as fresh. They're poison sold as perfume. Don't listen to them. Do not be attracted to them. Don't give your flesh or the world or the enemy a foothold in the battle against sin, but press on towards Christ. Press on towards your sanctifier, and as you behold him, and apply the word and seek to follow him, rest assured that it is, it is he who holds on to you and is at work in you to see you safely home. But thirdly, cherish God as your father. Cherish God as your father. What a rich treasure to be called sons and daughters of God. What a treasure, what a gift. Don't ever get over that. Take that truth with you everywhere you go. Let the love of God displayed toward you provide comfort and assurance and motivation that you might live in such a way that the world takes notice and says, that one belongs to to him. Just as they said of the disciples, they remembered that they had been with Christ. 
May the aroma of Christ walk with us as we interact with others. And no matter what this world takes from you, no matter how deep and dark the trial is that you're in, nothing can overshadow or remove this glorious truth. He calls us sons and daughters. If you're his, this is your assurance. Let's pray together. Lord God, how humbling it is to think of you calling us your children. For those of us who have been in Christ for some time, we we may have grown used to that idea because we've heard it or read it so many times, but God, may we never get over it. What a rich treasure and truth this is, that because of the suffering of the only begotten Son, that we become the unworthy beneficiaries For those who behold the Son in faith, turning to Him in repentance from sin, eternally we are your adopted sons and daughters. What a gift. Help us to live in light of this this week and to worship you as you are worthy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.